Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Welcome back, Mark Wench. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for welcoming me back. I was hoped I would be welcomed with my own cassock. You know. it's, hard, it's hard to compete with that, you know. In any case, it's good to see everyone back again. Uh, tonight, I would like to continue with some of the reflections we began last time. Uh, for those of you who did not attend, I, I'm going to do my best to get you caught up uh, without boring everybody else, going over all this stuff that they already know. Uh, and, and then we'll also move forward. Okay? Now, I, des I designed this two-part two lecture series uh, in such a way that they would have its own uh, ordered kind of integrity. Uh, the way I designed it is such that the first talk, we would deal a little bit with St. Augustine's intellectual conversion. Uh, tonight, we're going to try to deal a little bit more with his moral conversion. Now, as we began last time, we looked at the nature of conversion. Conversion involves turning around. And for conversion to be complete, one ought to turn him or herself all the way around. Well, the next question you might wonder is, to what are we turning? And the answer would be to God. Okay? And it's clear that any authentic Christian conversion is a turn toward God. And a turn toward God with our whole person. Now, there are two faculties okay, of man uh, that philosophers claim to be man's highest faculties. One is his intellect, and the intellect is ordered to truth. Uh, and then there is the will, and it is ordered towards the good, or towards goodness. And so it would seem, if man is to make a complete turn toward God, uh, and away from falsehood, the opposite of truth, away from evil, if you will, the opposite of what is good, okay? he will have to do this again with his whole person. Uh, if the entire man is to be turned towards God, uh, he cannot simply turn towards God with his mind, but neglect his moral life. Uh, certainly he cannot turn towards God with his moral life if he doesn't know to which object he ought to turn. And so tonight we'll see, I think hopefully in a little bit more detail, the intimate relationship between our intellect and will and the way in which we use both of these faculties to turn toward God. Uh, we'll see again that uh, in the life of St. Augustine, at least, his turn towards God was very arduous. Now, uh, as we'll look, on, look at the end of this text that I gave you for last time, uh, he does not recommend that others follow the same path that he had trod. Uh, he recommends that someone... Uh, uh, turn towards God in their youth, receive the faith of their parents, uh, be faithful to God by way of, of, of what he's revealed, and then seek to try to understand 
what he has believed from infancy. Now, for Augustine, for reasons we, we began to discuss last time, rejected the faith of his youth and tried by an alternative means to come to discover God. But God, in his great mercy, allows people to reach him by way of different methods. And so God, since he's given man a mind, an intellect, uh, that can know truth, even apart from revelation, apart from faith, and the great assistance that that can give, St. Augustine, by simply seeking after truth, finally stumbled upon the fullness of truth as articulated in the Catholic faith. Now, it was, as we began to discuss last time, a very circuitous path that took him through a host of uh, intellectual maladies, if you will, different systems of thought that are incompatible with Christianity. And what we saw last time, hopefully, is that with an inadequate philosophical conception of reality, he was incapable of coming to the fullness of truth. And this is how reason can assist one, if he or she is not a believer, in coming to know the fullness of truth. If there is an adequate philosophy, a philosophy that articulates the truth, granted not in the full way that we experience the truth by way of our faith, but if it, ex- if it ar- articulates truth in a way that it can by way of reason, that can, if you will, till the soil okay, upon which the seed of revelation can be sown. If we're able to see how there is something about the gospel that is intelligible and even consistent with the truths that can be known by way of reason, we are all the more liable to be open to the fullness of truth that, was, that can be found only in God's church. And so we saw with, regarding his intellectual conversion, we saw Augustine begin this journey towards something of an intellectual conversion uh, by reading the Hortensius of Cicero. Now, uh, that's not as important as uh, uh, what he learned from this text. What he learned from this text w- was to seek truth via reason. It admonished man to seek truth by way of his rational faculty. Now, Augustine, okay, by way of seeking truth via reason, stumbled first upon certain philosophical systems uh, that were ultimately going to be incompatible uh, with the faith. Okay? First, he stumbles upon Manichaeanism, uh, the philosophy of Mani, uh, which advocated uh, of doctrine a way of looking at reality that we discussed last time uh, that allowed him to be exonerated of any, or mi- any, any of his culpability morally was mitigated by the fact that uh, reality was ultimately governed by two dueling principles, one good, one evil. And man is, is simply a pawn in this divine power play between this good and evil force. Uh, the, the soul was likened to a kind of light body that was good, and, and the body of man was ultimately originating from this evil principle. And so when he did good, it was because this good principle was winning the day. When he did evil, it was because this evil principle was winning the day. 
but Augustine himself was not culpable for his actions. Uh, and this is one of the ways uh, in which uh, he, he was able to uh, ultimately justify some of his, if you will, morally evil inclinations. Okay, so we stumbled upon Manichaeanism. And this uh, also brought with it a kind of materialism. Okay, and I'm just going to abbreviate here. Materialism and also determinism. Okay. Uh, the Manichaeans were ultimately, at least as he encountered them, materialistic. They reduced all that can be known to what is material. They were also deterministic. Obviously, everything that happens is, in some sense, predetermined. And they denied of man any kind of true freedom. Now, once he finally abandons Manichaeanism, and, and, and the reason uh, he abandoned it was ultimately because he uh, uh, met one of their bishops who was incapable of answering some of his more fundamental questions about, uh, for instance, why these two principles are constantly in strife. So he eventually abandons Manichaeanism. Okay? And this happens... Uh, around uh, his 29th year, when he leaves North Africa to teach in Rome. And he abandons at least this heir, but he still carries with him uh, a kind of materialistic outlook on reality and also a kind of determinism. Now, what did he abandon this philosophical uh, worldview for? He abandoned it for a, a popular uh, way of thinking among academics of his time. Uh, and, and it was the air of skepticism. I'm just going to abbreviate here because I'm running out of board. In any case, uh, this was the next kind of ideology that he embraced. Uh, the whole idea that man is incapable of coming to any real, authentic conception of truth. Or anything that we can know is ultimately mutable or changing. Uh, and there are no truths that man can know that are, if you will, trans-epical or transcultural. In other words, truths that are unchanging and immutable. Uh, how, this, if you will, you can see, uh, would seem to end his journey, his intellectual journey. But fortunately, he came upon uh, a more adequate philosophical instrument. Okay? And he even sees God's providential hand involved in his stumbling upon the works of the Neoplatonists or the Platonists. He just calls them the Platonists. In, in hindsight, we call them Neoplatonists, but uh, for him, they were just called the Platonists. Individuals like uh, Plotinus and Porphyry, uh, some famous uh, figures from the ancient world. He stumbles upon their works, okay, and this is where I think we're going to pick up tonight in the text. By stumbling upon them, he's able to overcome his skepticism and also, eventually, able to overcome his materialism and his determinism. And after having done this, he comes to discover, uh, again, supersensible reality, that reality is not reducible to that which is material. Uh, he also, obviously, comes to know that truth is something man can know. And here, finally, he's able to see that the childhood gospel that he received uh, of Christianity makes a lot more sense and is in some way intelligible and supported in a very substantial way by some of the greatest philosophical minds of human history. This would, if you will, pave the way uh, for his complete intellectual conversion to the faith. 
But as I mentioned, there's something more than intellectual conversion that is necessary for man to completely be turned toward God. And in addition to his intellectual conversion, he needs something of a moral conversion. Okay? Now, in his moral conversion, he struggled principally, it seems, with certain sins. The sin of pride, uh, and everyone makes a, a big deal of his struggles with lust, which is, is fine and true, uh, but pride seems to be at least as, as serious a struggle for Augustine. Uh, now, we'll, we'll view tonight how he was able to experience some kind of moral conversion. Uh, a lot of this took place by his stumbling upon uh, the, the writings of St. Paul, along with the witness of St. Ambrose. Uh, St. Ambrose was his mentor and uh, received him into the church. So the witness of these great men, okay, the writings of St. Paul, uh, began in him something of a moral conversion. However, his very openness to read St. Paul uh, was only is, is due fundamentally to the fact that he had stumbled upon a way, uh, a philosophical way of thinking that made all of a sudden the Gospels make sense to him. Uh, however, he discovered the Gospels go beyond the truths of philosophy uh, in a very significant way, in a way that is necessary for him to in, in fully embrace the fullness of truth and the fullness of life in Christ. Uh, and we'll see a little bit later some of the other steps he makes. Uh, he hears some very important conversion stories, uh, a story of, of, uh, about a man named Victorinus, uh, who was a famous teacher, much like Augustine. Uh, he, he encounters these famous conversion stories. And finally, he has a, a special moment of grace. He's in, in the garden, actually weeping over his struggles to really give himself completely to Christ. Uh, and he hears, again, this, this girl's voice saying, Tole lege, which means take and read. And he reads from uh, the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And this, in this one moment, God acts in such a way to seal his, his moral conversion. And so an extremely special moment of grace kind of seals the deal. And from then on, it's just a matter of preparing to be baptized. And so we'll take, uh, again, this evening... Uh, take you through all of these different stages. Uh, and we'll see how they emerge and how he makes uh, these, these advances toward a full conversion by way of this text that we'll look at in common. Okay, so that's more or less the agenda for this evening. Mm. Excuse me. <laughs> I've always struggled drinking water. It's not, it's not something I've mastered. You know, there's a funny story you know, about philosophers. Uh, I, I might have mentioned it when I was, I was studying ancient philosophy with you. Uh, but, but this one child was mocking this philosopher who is known to be philosophizing and walking around the countryside and fall into holes you know, and do things that made the children laugh. Uh, and, and so this man wanted to kind of get these people back. And so what he did is he used his knowledge of the heavens uh, to discover when there was going to be a good harvest. And then he bought all the harvesting equipment, okay, and, and he rented all of it. And then when everyone was prepared uh, to, to harvest these crops, they, they had none of the materials to do it. And then he sold them all off uh, you know, at this you know, a, a very expensive fee. And his, and his point was, you know, philosophers can always be practical. They can always master things like walking up staircases, something I also haven't mastered, and drinking water, okay? Uh, uh, you know, 
Uh, but they're too busy doing higher things. You know? <laughs> anyway, so that, that was his point. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to claim the same for myself, but maybe by participation, uh, maybe uh, uh, to some extent, you know. Uh, well, for now, I'll claim that as my own, my own justification for my, my mishap. In any case, uh, so let's return to the text. Uh, now, in the text here, uh, I think I picked out a section of his confessions that I think best takes us through uh, these different steps. Okay? Now, what we see at the very beginning, so this will be on page 138 okay, of the text uh, that we distributed. Uh, we get to see St. Augustine's mind and the way in which he conceived of God uh, before his intellectual conversion. And, and as we, we, we saw last time, he doesn't see God rightly. Uh, his vision of God is, is very skewed. Now, his vision of God at the beginning of this text is again errant. And he's unable to really embrace the Christian God, especially this Christian God that is immutable and unchanging and immaterial because of his materialism. And so he views God... Uh, as a kind of infinite sea, okay? And within this infinite sea, uh, there's something of a sponge that is finite, okay? That has, uh, a, has limits. Uh, it is not infinite in, in, in extension. Uh, unlike God, who is, is something of an infinite material thing that goes infinitely beyond, if you will, his finite creation. Uh, it says here that he even pictures angelic or spiritual things, too, as material bodies. It says about ten lines down. Uh, and he sees that God encompasses this, this world on all sides. He permeates and penetrates uh, the world. And so he wonders, and he wonders about a, a question that men is, have always wondered about. Oh, how did evil then creep into the world? Okay. Now, the problem of evil is going to be seen to be very closely linked with his materialism. And as he overcomes his materialism, even in the course of this text, we'll also see how he overcame this problem of evil. Now, the problem is, uh, let, me, let me make the problem clear, how evil crept into the world. If God permeates the world, you, you picture a sponge, and what is it full of? It's full of the ocean. Okay? It's full, and, the, and, and it is, if you will, almost part of it. Now, if God is perfectly good, and he fills this sponge with himself, how can evil get into the world? Where does it come from? How did it steal into it? If it comes from this perfectly good God, and is permeated by this perfectly good infinite God, how did evil sneak in? It would seem that anything you say about the world can be said about God. Uh, remember, God permeates it. And so maybe whatever the world has uh, is, is less of the same thing, still must have all of the same kinds of perfections that God does, uh, but just maybe less of them. It's not that God has something the world doesn't have, or that the world would have something that God doesn't have. That's the problem. And so where did evil come from? And how can we say that God, in God there's no evil, but somehow in his created world there is? It's a, it's a major problem. Now how does he go about resolving it? We'll see this unfold. 
But before he unfolds and unravels this mystery, uh, we see him overcome one more of these uh, problematic uh, intellectual errors, and that would be the error of determinism. The Manichaeans articulate a kind of determinism, but he also embraced an alternative kind of determinism as well, the determinism of astrology. Okay? The astrologists uh, d- uh, claimed, of course, that, uh, much like they claim today, that the movements of the heavens, or the orientation of the heavens, uh, somehow dictates, especially at our birth, dictate the kind of life we will lead. Now, he, he had some problems with that, and, and he was able to see the ultimate incoherence of that way of looking at reality. And he was able to do this by way of reflecting upon twins that were born under, if you will, the same sign, the same heavens. And yet, these twins, you know, we can look at Jacob and Esau, led very different lives, and their fates, if you will, were very different from one another. You could also point out, and he points out a story his friend told them, of a a slave child uh, that was born at the same time that his master's son was born. And it's clear that even though they were born under the same heavens, their fates in life would be very different. And so by way of these kind of arguments, he overcomes, uh, to some extent, this kind of determinism uh, with which he was wrestling. And then he turns to a, a more serious problem. Again, uh, the problem of his uh, materialism. And this, this problem really is significant. Okay? And so let's see how he slowly is able to overcome that. But first, I want to turn your attention very briefly uh, to one of the major reasons he was incapable of seeing a resolution. It's not just that he hadn't stumbled upon the Neoplatonists but he was still wrestling with the sin of pride. And we see on 143 uh, that pride, uh, there's, there's a mention of pride that he's struggling with, about six lines from the bottom. And then if you turn on to the next page, we'll actually read a portion of text, uh, and we'll see how pride was inhibiting and, and, and prohibiting uh, him from seeing the fullness of truth, okay, uh, and, and so it states here, okay, at the top of 144, and I was separated from you by the swelling of my pride, as though my cheeks were so puffed with conceit that they masked the sight of my eyes, and so here, it's a very vivid analogy, he's trying to show that our moral d- deficiencies have a kind of supervenience, if you will. They affect what is going on even in our minds. And if our pride is such, that it is a dominant part of our moral experience, it will actually prohibit us from seeing the fullness of truth. Okay? And so this is something, again, that, that, that he was preventing him from seeing the fullness of truth. We see in that brief part 8 of book 7, again, Under the secret touch of your healing hand, my swelling pride subsided, and day by day the pain I suffered brought me health, like the ointment which stung but cleared the confusion and darkness from the eye of my mind. And, and, and I'll, let me take a moment, as we slowly uh, kind of interrupt our, our movement forward, to reflect on this reality. Uh, 
the great obstacle, one of the great obstacles toward uh, growth in the intellectual life is often pride. And it's, it's not ironic that in the very beginning of philosophy, uh, Socrates was called the wise man. And does anyone remember why he was called the wise man? Well, he knew, exactly, he knew that he knew nothing. Uh, he was aware of his own ignorance. Meanwhile, everybody else thought they knew something. And so what he did is he would walk around and point out that these people that thought they knew something didn't know anything. And, and so he finally says that if I am wise in any way, it's because at least I know that I don't know. Okay? And so one of the, the, the ways of, of coming to wisdom, uh, according to Socrates, is, is that one has to learn his own ignorance. Okay? And, and be very, uh, very humble when, when pursuing truth. Uh, now this is something that we read, uh, uh, my freshman at the college read. Uh, and, and then I present him with this problem. and See if you can unravel this one. If the truly wise man is conscious of his own ignorance, then at the end of four years of higher education, it would seem that the best students would become supremely aware that they know nothing. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, it would seem to follow, wouldn't it? And so they come home to mom and dad, who have paid a, a pretty penny to send their, their children to, uh, to receive a good education, and they ask them, you know, what did you end up learning? Oh, mom, I thought I was ignorant when I got in there. I am so ignorant now, it's just unbelievable. You know, and, and therefore, uh, I, I, I should you know, play the part of a wise man and walk around in a toga and go to symposium drinking parties and, and put on you know, my, my Birkenstocks and walk about, you know, uh, you know being the philosopher. Uh, you know, parents might get a little upset you know, and, uh, and demand maybe some, some return for their investment. And, and it would seem like they, they are, uh, are bound to that or they, they're owed that. And so I asked my, my students, how can you... Uh, make compatible a growth in knowledge and a growth in ignorance or a kind of learned wisdom. Uh, does, it, yeah, does anyone see how that might be possible? Right? How can you simultaneously and proportionally grow in knowledge and grow in knowledge of your own ignorance? Okay, humility, certainly you need that virtue, okay? But, but how intellectually can you see that a growth in knowledge immediately leads to a growth in ignorance? You got it. Okay, so, so that's, it's an astute answer. So what happens is the more you know, the more you're able to see of those horizons that you had hitherto been ignorant of. Okay? I liken this, I also explain this to my students. We live in Front Royal, Virginia, and, and there's, this, uh, there's this Skyline Drive. And there's some jokes of people in Front Royal, Virginia, out there in Warren County, never leave and, and have never been anywhere else and, and might be inclined to think that all of reality is, is like Front Royal, Virginia. Uh, and then I, I say, well, then they walk, they walk up on, on Skyline Drive, which is beautiful. I recommend you visit. And uh, although not in the fall when all of the people come out, uh, people all come out the same day and traffic is miles long. Like, why don't you just come out another day? It just doesn't make sense. Or come out early. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, that's, another, that's not... Neither here nor there. In any case, you go up on Skyline Drive, and all of a sudden, let's say you'd spent your time in Front Royal, you think you have everything figured out. 
And then you look out, and all of a sudden, whoa, there's Winchester. There's like another town over there. You know, there's, there's other, there's a river over there, a river that I'm not familiar with. Well, there's the backside of the mountains. You know, how far do they extend? And all of a sudden, you've grown in knowledge. You know, you know there's a town over there. You know there's a, new, a river over there that you're not familiar with. And as you grow, you see all the horizons that you had hitherto been ignorant of. And, and this is a little bit like you'll experience with the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, you didn't know how much you didn't know about philosophy. You, know, you didn't know, you know you, how much you didn't know about history and about theology. You go to Mass every day. And, and this is how you stay humble. And this is how uh, you can grow in knowledge and grow in knowledge of your own ignorance at the same time. And, and because the greatest impediment to learning is when you think you've made it. Uh, you've arrived. You know all the answers. Uh, the, 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 the stupidity of that is almost unbelievable, huh? because truth is infinite. Just like being in reality is infinite, uh, truth is infinite. And so when you think in your little finite mind you have everything figured out, you're the most ridiculous person on the planet. Huh? And, and the truly wise man knows what he knows and is comfortable with it. Uh, we can have knowledge, but if he's truly wise, he'll become more and more humble the more and more he learns because he will simultaneously grow in his own ignorance as he grows in knowledge. Okay, so this is, is, is something to ponder. Uh, now, Augustine uh, was struggling with pride in a significant way, and this was impeding his intellectual growth. And then what changed? Okay, uh, well, some things changed. Clearly, God played a hand in it uh, by helping him along the way. Uh, but also some natural events happened over the course of his life that helped him overcome uh, all these problems. And we see on page 144, part 9, uh, that a man procured for me some of the books of the Platonists, translated from Greek into Latin. Uh, we spoke last time about his knowledge of Greek, and, and it wasn't you know, sufficient. Uh, and, and, and he needed some help uh, uh, with his translation. But once he had the, this translation, uh, he was able to see something extraordinary. He's able to see the coherence of the Catholic faith. He's able to see a philosophy, uh, which is the pursuit of truth by reason, that was compatible with uh, the truths that he believed in by faith. And so now we turn to part 10, okay, and this is on page 146. Now, what exactly uh, did these truths do for him? Uh, well, they served him to remind me to return to my own self. And I entered, and with the lie, I, I'm sorry, of my soul, such as it was, I saw the light never changes, casting its rays over the same eye of, uh, of my soul, over my mind. Now, if we go down further on the page, it shone above my mind, and this is a very important passage, onto 147, but not in the way that oil floats above water, or the sky hangs over the earth. It was above me because it was itself the light that made me. Okay? So what is he discovering? Okay, he's discovering truth, and it doesn't go into all the details of all the truths he's discovering. But one of the things he discovers again is that truth is itself higher than him, and the origin of truth, which he'll discover to be God, is higher than him. Now, he used to think of everything in space and time. And so if God was higher than him, he would have to be, in some sense, almost physically above him. But he discovers another sense of what it means to be higher. 
Uh, in what way is God higher than him? What are ways that something can be higher than something else? Certainly there's a physical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Now, what are the distinctions between creator and creature? Well, creator is a cause. A creature is an effect. Uh, the effect comes from the cause. Without the cause, no effect. Okay, and so there's a sense of dependence for our being upon the creator. Again, if you, if you have, uh, for instance, to, to look at the relationship between causes and effects, let me uh, try to speak about to that. Um, you can say that without the cause, no effect. Without the fire, you cannot have the heat. Uh, and in a similar way, God is the cause of the world that's, uh, that it's, its effect. Now, God then is going to be higher, maybe in the sense that he, he created the world and then it comes from him. And so in what way is it higher? Well, God has perfections. Or God's way of existing is higher than man's way of existing. God exists in what way? God exists as eternal. God exists as immutable. God exists as omniscient. He knows everything. Uh, God exists in a whole range of ways, even as an immaterial being, okay, uh, uh, if you will. And he exists then in a way that is literally higher than man's mode of being. Uh, man does not have all the perfections that God has. And so we can speak then, to some extent, of, of man being lower because he does not have the same perfections as God. Or if he has some of the same perfections, he has them in a different degree. Okay? So God lives and man lives, but man's mode of life is not like God's mode of life. Okay? Now, these are some of the truths he's beginning to stumble upon. And this is going to lead him to overcome materialism momentarily. Uh, but let me interrupt this very briefly to discuss uh, what happens when he discovers truth. Now, by way of the Neoplatonic thought, he is able to, to encounter truth and also to overcome this air of skepticism. And let me momentarily, it's not in here, uh, but he finds ways of refuting the skeptics. And I mentioned some of these in the question and answer period last time. But I think it's relevant and interesting because he prefigured even something that, that René Descartes, a famous philosopher, would do centuries later, even in the 17th century. Uh, well, he, he got to thinking, and, and, he, and he got to thinking in this way because he read the Neoplatonic philosophers. And they showed him that truth is unchanging. And that's one of the ways it is higher than Augustine. His mind is changing, whereas truth is unchanging. Okay, we discover the truths of mathematics, and they are, if you will, trans-epical and transcultural. Uh, they're true in Tajikistan, in Mongolia, in, in, in Australia, in South America, and here. Uh, there's something about the character of truth that it is unchanging, and therefore is, is, has this perfection that Augustine doesn't even have. Uh, our minds are changing. We move from ignorance to knowledge and back again sometimes. Uh, again, our minds are always changing, whereas the truth is in some sense higher and unchanging. Now, if anyone was to doubt that truth is knowable, uh, Augustine gave some uh, uh, kind of... Uh, paradoxes, if you will, that showed how uh, skepticism is ultimately untenable. And let me give just one of those now. 
He said, let's just say I even doubt all that I know. Let's say I doubt everything uh, that I've ever known. This guarantees at least one truth, and that's that I exist. Even if everything I've ever known is, is dubious, there has to be something that is doing the doubting. In other words, the very fact that I can always doubt demonstrates my existence. That there is a subject doing the doubting. And so he gave a famous uh, line, See fallor ergo sum. Uh, I may be deceived, therefore I am. Okay? Uh, and again, preempting Descartes you know, by over a thousand years uh, by saying, you know, I can, I can be absolutely certain of my own existence even by the very fact I doubt. And so this shows the skeptics, and if you're so skeptic that you won't even believe that truth is attainable, this is a way of showing them that truth is attainable, and truth is unchanging, and can be known. And this is some truth that can be known. But Augustine did believe in truth, and and, and he did believe in, in truth in such a way that it enabled him to overcome his materialism. And so let me speak to that very briefly. He said, okay, fine. I, I, I discovered some of these truths of Neoplatonic thought. I can see how truth is unchanging. The truths of mathematics, certain moral truths, that eternal goods are to be preferred to temporal. And therefore, I've been convinced that truth is knowable. And then he moves from the knowledge that truth of truth to a knowledge of, of immaterial reality that allows him to overcome his materialism. And we'll see this in the Confessions a little bit in a moment. But he argues in this way, which is a very, it's very characteristic of, of a Platonic thinker, to argue in this way. Now the Platonists would say that we have two kinds of knowledge. We have something called opinion, or doxa, which is rooted in the discovery of the material world. Now the material world is ever-changing. And so all they held that we can know about the, about the world is also changing and isn't unchanging knowledge. But they did say that we do have some kind of knowledge, uh, knowledge that is mutable, and it's rooted in mutable reality. But how do we explain the fact that we have truth? Truth is immutable. And so where must it come from? It can't come from what is mutable. But truth must come from what is immutable. So just to to reiterate that, if our changing knowledge is rooted in changing reality, and all knowledge is rooted in reality, because knowledge is knowledge of what is outside of the mind, okay, at least for realist thinkers, okay? And so, for Augustine, if our changing knowledge is rooted in changing reality, and I have these truths that are unchanging, let's say the truth of mathematics, the truth that 3 plus 2 equals 5, where must these truths be rooted? Are they just floating around? No, just like changing reality, uh, changing knowledge is rooted in changeable reality, unchanging knowledge must be rooted in unchanging reality. And what else is unchanging reality besides God? And so he sees in a moment that truth must be rooted in an immaterial, because all material things are changing, an immaterial God. And God must be the origin of truth. 
And so in his way of, in the order of knowledge, in his discovery of God, he moves from a knowledge of truth to a knowledge of where it comes from as rooted in immaterial reality that we call God. Except in terms of where the truths come from. If we look at it from that angle, these truths must come from God himself. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas has a slightly different way of justifying how man knows truth, but that's the way that it's done by Augustine. Now, let's see how this emerges in the text. Uh, We see towards the bottom of part 10. Is truth then nothing at all? This is five lines from the bottom of part 10, still on 147. Is truth then nothing at all, simply because it has no extension in space, with or without limits? And far off I heard your voice saying, I am the God who is. And you see that is a quote from Exodus 3.14. God is the I am who am, the unchanging being. I am existence. I am unchanging reality. And so he can see then that these truths as unchanging must be rooted in this unchanging reality that is God. Okay, and I heard your voice as we hear voices speak to our hearts. And at once I had no cause to doubt. I might more easily have doubted that I was alive than that truth had been. Okay, now moving on. Okay, he discovers then God as this higher being that is higher and more perfect than himself. And he discovers that material reality is not all that exists, but there is something like immaterial reality. Now let's look at at part 11, okay? Also I considered all other things that are of a lower order than yourself. And I saw that they have not absolute being in themselves, nor are they entirely without being. They are real insofar as they have their being from you, but unreal in the sense that they are not what you are. For it is only that which remains in being without change that truly is. Now, I might have drawn this in one of my other lectures, maybe one of the first ones I've done for you. I call this my funnel of being. Uh, Actually, the students called it that, and and I just took it up. But I think it expresses something of what he's going to say. So he's, he's starting to see what it is that distinguishes the creature from the creator. What do they have that he doesn't have? And what, what is it that God has that creatures do not have? Well, God has the fullness of being and the fullness of perfections. Creatures have a share in being and a share in some of the perfections of God, but in a lesser sense. Now, what is it that the creatures have that God does not have? They have, in some sense, They have non-reality. They have privation. They have a lack of the fullness of being. Now, this will express that to some extent. Now, if we look at this this funnel, and we put God here at the top, and we put in this ordered hierarchy uh, a bunch of other beings that come from God, okay? Uh, we, we have angels, okay. we have man, we have animals, okay. we have plants, 
we have rocks. Okay? And on down. Now we see that there is an ordered hierarchy. Beings are higher than other beings. Okay? Now what makes them higher or lower? Well, what this middle part of the funnel represents is the perfections they share in common with God. Okay? Now, what are perfections that plants share in common with God that rocks do not? Life. They have life. That's good. They have life. Uh, animals have some kinds of knowledge. Okay? Man has rational knowledge and freedom. Okay? And so we see that as these, these beings closer resemble God... They have more of a share of being. And what happens as we go down the chart? They have more non-being. There is more that they are deprived of. There is more that they lack when compared to God himself. And so he gets this idea that what creatures have that makes them different is a kind of, they, they lack the fullness of being. Unlike God, who is, does not lack for anything. He who is being in the most complete sense. And he uses this idea to unlock the problem of evil. Okay? He sees that even the most miserable little rock, okay, this corruptible piece of matter, is real. Okay? And by being real and corruptible is also good. It's good to have existence. I mean, think about it. Even the most corruptible piece of matter. What does it mean to be corrupted? Is to be corrupted from some good. And so even the most corruptible thing could not be corrupted if it didn't have something that is good that is being corrupted. And so he concludes that everything that is, is good. Not in the same way, God is perfectly good, and all of these things are good by participation. They share in a lesser degree in some of the perfections they received from God. And so he gets this idea in his head that what makes man and every creature different is that they lack something. And he uses this to unlock the problem of evil. And we'll see this on the next page. He'll say, he'll say, that what is, for instance, some of the evils that we experience in life? For instance, blindness. What is blindness? Is it a thing? If it was a thing, it would be good. And so how is it a kind of evil? Well, it's an evil because it's a privation. A lack of sight. You know, what is moral evil? Is it a thing? It's not a thing, but it's a lack of order. When I do something that is disordered, we call that evil. And so evil is not a thing at all. If it was a thing, it would be good. But instead, it's a lack. In the case of physical evil, it's a lack in the order of nature. Okay, when you have a, a broken leg... There is a lack of due order. And we call that evil in the sense of it being deprived of the nature it should have. Okay? Uh, we speak of moral evil also by this notion of privation. Uh, a lack of due order in some activity. Okay? 
And thus, what is evil? Okay, he goes on to say, uh, even in 13 on page 148, and I can't read all these because I'm beginning to run out of time, uh, but we see that we think of things as evil. And that evil is not a substance, because if it was a substance, it would share in being, and by sharing in being, it would be good. And so evil is instead a kind of privation. Now, in, mo- in modern philosophy, every now and then you stumble upon a gem uh, in the rough, you know, uh, uh, a diamond in the rough, as it were. And I, and I think I got this from reading Jean-Paul Sartre, which I wouldn't recommend necessarily. Uh, and... and uh, uh, although I think he's a better playwright than he is philosopher. And actually, most philosophers agree. Martin Heidegger, uh, uh, who was someone Sartre loved and admired, thought that Sartre was a horrific philosopher. In any case, he said something that actually communicates something that's very similar to Augustine. He said, Augustine, then, evil only exists not as a thing, but as a felt psychological reality. Re- what it really is is privation, a privation uh, of some order, uh, in the moral order or in nature. Uh, and we experience that as a felt psychological reality. Now, what does that mean? Okay, well, I have a good analogy, and this also I think uh, my students kind of like. Uh, when you ask a girl out on a date, you, know, you ask her out, and she says yes, and she's going to meet you somewhere. And you're all excited, and you get there, and she hasn't shown up yet, and you're waiting. And then you think, well, there's that good country song, Waiting on a Woman. You know, here's my chance. I'm waiting on a woman, and she should be here any moment now. Of course, the students would then be playing with their phones and texting people and doing all these things. Uh, You know, an hour rolls around, and you think, "Uh, maybe she's not coming, okay? And the felt psychological reality, okay, her not being in that chair across from you, is real as a felt psychological reality, which is very different than the reality of her being there. And so we experience evil, and evil is not to be denied, but it's not a thing, but it's a lack. And he was able to see that by way of this alternative vision of reality that was offered by Neoplatonic thought. Now there's more to be said here, but I'm going to move on. In 14... Uh, it speaks about him overcoming the idea of an extended God that was extended through all space to infinity. He's now been able to see that God is immaterial, and therefore the doctrine of Christianity is finally able to make some sense. Uh, we go on to 150. He realizes something else. Uh, he realizes that God is in creation, but not as he used to think. He used to think that creation was a part of God, uh, like our arm is a part of us in some sense. The sponge is a part of the sea. But God is in the, in the world in a different way. And in what way is, it, is God in the world? Not substantially, but by way of his power, sustaining the world in existence. And this is the way God is in the world. Okay, the world isn't, we don't have a pantheistic vision of reality. The world isn't a part of God, uh, but God is in the world by sustaining it in existence. And he gets all of these ideas by way of the Neoplatonic thinkers. Uh, page 151, is, is a, on part 17, is a great uh, uh, demonstration of how he came again to see God uh, by way of philosophy. And yet, there's a problem. We see at the top of page 152. 
I had no strength to fix my gaze upon the truths that he has discovered. And so in 18, I began to search for a means of, of finding the strength I needed to enjoy you. So what the problem is here is though he has overcome his materialism, his determinism, his skepticism, he's embraced a good philosophy that leads him to the fullness of truth, we're missing something, okay? And what we're missing is that he's still stuck with this sin of pride, okay? And he still does not have the strength to avoid the sin of lust and other sins of the flesh. And so he cannot endure or in his vision of truth because he's still morally bound to sin. Now he's in a predicament, okay? And, and he tries to look for a solution. And he does not find it there in Neoplatonic thought. There's something that is missing from even the great truths of the Neoplatonists. We see on 154, by reading these books of the Platonists, part 20, I had been prompted to look for truth as something incorporeal. And it did that. It showed him that and much more. But he was, as it states in the middle of the page, full of self-esteem and self-conceit. He is still burdened with the sin of pride. And that's the danger with philosophy sometimes, is you think philosophy is alone, is, is all you need to know the fullness of truth. But then he said, just below this, but how could I expect the Platonist books would ever teach me charity? Okay? And so there are some truths, the truths about the Incarnation, the truth that God, that is known by way of philosophy, became flesh, became an infant in the arms of, of his mother to save his people from their sins. That great drama is not contained in the works of the Neoplatonists. And so we see on page tw on 21, on page 155, So I seized eagerly upon the ven venerable writings inspired by the Holy Spirit especially of the Apostle Paul. And he speaks of the gift of grace that he receives by reading uh, the works of Scripture. And he discovers caritas, he discovers love in the full sense of the word. The love that God showed by becoming man and dying for him and rising. And we see then at the top of the, of the last page we'll look at on 156, that none of this is contained in the Platonist books. And so there is a knowledge that goes beyond the knowledge of philosophy that is necessary for him to truly be complete. And then reflecting finally upon this completion of this long intellectual journey, he says the following lines, okay? Uh, the second to last paragraph. It is one thing to describe the land of peace from a wooden hilltop, and unable to find the way to it, struggle on through trackless wastes where traitors and runaways, captained by their prince who is lion and serpent in one, lie in wait to attack. It is another thing to follow the high road to the land of peace, the way that is defended by the care of the heavenly commander. Here there are no deserters from, from the heaven's army to prey upon the traveler, because they shun the road as a torment. Now, what he has discovered, okay, he says, it was wonderful how these truths came home to me when I read the least of your apostles. What he's discovered there, the different roads, one road is the road he took. 
this circuitous road of philosophy that comes to know God. And he instead advocates for someone else the path of faith. The path that leads you and leads even a child to truths that are higher than the highest truths of the philosopher. Uh, When professed with faith, the creed gives us knowledge that philosophy, reason unaided by faith, cannot give. And therefore, he advocates the preferred means of coming to wisdom as believing and then seeking to do philosophy to help know your faith better. And yet, God still worked through him and led him by way of all of these heirs to the fullness of truth. Now, as he begins to seek then, for the strength to find uh, a way to love God rightly. Okay? Uh, his journey goes as follows. I'm going to have to say this in an abbreviated form, but we'll finish the story. Okay? Now, having discovered God intellectually, okay, uh, what comes next? Okay? How is he able to seal the deal of his conversion? He's been freed from the shackles of materialism and skepticism by way of Neoplatonic thought. But what helps him next is his encounter with good Christians. Simplicianus, this great old priest who was the teacher of St. Ambrose. And and, 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 uh, Simplicianus, and I would read more from this uh, if I had time, what did he do? He told him the story of Victorinus, a wonderful convert, a man brilliant in the art of rhetoric, just like Augustine, who intellectually had a conversion to, to Christianity, was, but was too embarrassed to show himself in the church. And, and, he, and he wasn't quite humble until he finally became shamed of his own opinion and then made a public profession of faith. And, and this inspired Augustine to do the same. Another friend of his, Pontitianus, uh, also from Africa, told him the story of St. Anthony of the Desert. And isn't this instrumental in so many of our conversions? Uh, hearing the lives of the saints. And seeing those who have gone before us and being inspired by their activities. St. Ignatius of Loyola, you know, went, what was his conversion? His conversion was reading the lives of the saints. And they give us courage to do great things in God's name. And this helped him along the way. And finally, what sealed the deal was his agony over still being attached to certain uh, sins And then finally, what is it that breaks through? It's God that breaks through of God's own initiative. And he hears the words, take and read, uh, that is being uttered by a a, a girl. And this is all in the next book, in the eighth book here. Uh, And and, and he hears the words, take and read. And and so he takes the scriptures, and and, and his moral conversion is sealed upon reading Paul's letter to the Romans. In short order, he is baptized by St. Ambrose and becomes a Christian. Uh, His mom is there to embrace him, and he even is is baptized uh, with the child he fathered out of wedlock. Uh, And he says that by faith, uh, we are of the same age. Uh, His his son, who is, is, I think, only about 15 years old at the time, and uh, his, his father here, who was 33 years old. And so he reflects upon this journey. His journey from seeking wisdom all the way to, to the church. Okay? And, and, and then with the, the faith that comes uh, again, uh, uh, ultimately by way of grace, he was able to embrace the fullness of the truth uh, and, and seal also his moral conversion. Okay. Now, there's more I would like to say. But what I'd like you to take from this, again, 
is how similar uh, we all are to St. Augustine and how we all need to turn towards God with our whole being. And it's not even just with our minds and with our moral life that we can do this. But we can even do it physically because we're a mind-body composite. And you'll study this uh, next, week, next week with Dr. Cudabak or whenever he gives his lecture. And so even our worship involves turning towards God. Uh, our churches are made in such a way uh, that they face the rising sun. Okay, They should be. And, and we turn towards God in the Eucharist. We have gestures and physical eyes are turning towards God. And when that's accompanied by an internal movement, we can truly see uh, in God who we are supposed to be. And this will be my last comment here. Uh, it says in the Second Vatican Council that man discovers himself in discovering God. It's not in reflecting upon ourself that we discover ourselves, But ironically, it's in studying God, in whose image we have been made, that God reveals man to himself. Okay? And thus, I pray that we all together make an authentic intellectual and moral conversion, turn towards God, and assist those who might be struggling by helping them along the way. Uh, by, by alleviating those moral obstacles that are impediments for their conversion, or even those intellectual errors that are preventing them from making a similar turn towards God. That's my prayer. Thanks for your time. God bless, and have a good evening. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark. So we're going to take a quick break for those that need to leave. So our regular rules apply. Your question has to do with the subject at hand. It's one sentence long. If you have to take a breath, you'll know you broke it. And it has to have a question mark on the end of it. Uh, and, of course, it's my microphone. Don't take it away from me. St. Augustine was one of the uh, first um, doctors of the church. Is that primarily for the confessions or for City of God or yeah. all of the above? Yeah, I, okay. Well, two of the major works. So, so Augustine... Uh, to, to complete the rest of the story, he became a bishop, right? Uh, and he became a bishop in 395. In 398, between 398 and 400, he wrote his confessions. Uh, now, does anyone know what event occasioned his writing of the city of God? Oh, the well done. So the empire fell, it, well, Rome fell, at least, at, in, in 410. And then what happened is that the Christians were blamed for the fall of Rome. Okay, it's because uh, uh, Rome had grown weak by accepting some religion uh, that was weak and by abandoning its gods. This is the reason that Rome fell. And so Augustine begins the city of God as a reply, okay, as a rejection of that argument. And, and he offers some very fascinating arguments that I could spend time going off on right now about how he refuted that idea that was prevalent at the time. And then he used it in an overall, kind of a, it's a 27-volume work. It's just enormous, the full thing, uh, to reflect on the nature of, of man uh, and the nature of uh, you know, the, these two cities, the city of God, the city of the world. And he actually took, uh, I think, 13 years uh, to, to finish that. Uh, so he worked on that for, the, for a great portion of his life. And in the, in the meantime, he, he, was a, he wrote on a whole range of polemical issues. There's Donatists, there's a bunch of kind of her, heretics at the time were present. And so he, he wrote a bunch of tracts, uh, theological tracts, refuting certain heresies that were present. And so it, it's for the whole body of his work. You know, it's for his confessions that he was named a doctor of the church, along with the City of God, which are his two most famous works. 
But in terms of the theology uh, of authentic Catholicism, that comes through more in his letters uh, and more in his refutation of the different heresies. Because there you see uh, very clearly what it means to be an Orthodox Catholic and what is a deviation from Orthodoxy. And so I think, you know, and again, I'm not a theologian myself, but it seems like I think uh, his being named a doctor of the church is certainly for his confessions in the city of God, which are very popular, but it might even be more so for some of those other letters that he wrote uh, to, to other people in response to certain uh, heresies that were prevalent in, uh, at his time. Okay. It's a good question. To Jesus through Mary, what effect does uh, the, our Blessed Mother have on uh, St. Augustine conversion? Uh, question mark. Yeah, that's... that's it's, it, Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, and this, this, is, this is one where I, I, you know, you always have like a trump card, you like save, you know, and play it at strategic moments. Uh, uh, fortunately, because I, you know, I, I was asked to do this talk and I am by trade a philosopher, uh, you know, I'm not as familiar with the totality of, of St. Augustine's theology. Uh, but as far as the Blessed Mother goes, uh, you don't see, at least in the confessions, <clears throat> you don't see... Uh, the same kind of attention uh, that, that you might see in works of other saints regarding the Blessed Mother. Uh, it's, it's not as pronounced. Uh, but, but certainly he makes reference to the Blessed Mother in, in a variety of places. Uh, but but it, you know, as far as his Mariology or what that might be, uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's clear he, he obviously discusses this Love, you know, the, this, the he longs for, uh, you know, that is God. And, and, and uh, he does implore the Blessed Mother in, in a variety of places here. Uh, but it doesn't, uh, for whatever reason, at least in his confessions, uh, and in the City of God, the texts I'm familiar with because they're relevant for philosophy, uh, he doesn't make as, as many references as you might expect. However, it's also maybe because of the nature of those works and if you would read his theological works, uh, you might become more familiar that are strictly theological uh, with, uh, you know, again, his attitude towards Our, our Lady. And so, so unfortunately, I, I can't answer that, in, 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 and it would be good to pose that question of one of the theologians who bring in, uh, some Mariologists, to see you know, what is the extent and, and way in which uh, St. Augustine incorporates Mary uh, into his, his theology. Uh, again, there's a few passages, and, and I might, yeah, anyway, I, I, uh, you know, in the confessions, but it doesn't, she doesn't seem to have a central role, at least in this conversion, for what it's worth. Uh, St. Augustine talks about all things that God made are good, so does he address the issue of Satan? Is there uh, some well, this, this is a great mystery. There? Uh, is Satan, and what, you have to look at, you, so, so goodness you can look at in different ways. There is what they call ontological goodness, which is the fact that something exists. And as far as something exists, to exist is good. Now, then there's moral goodness, okay, in terms of what we do, okay. Uh, now, Satan is supremely morally evil, okay. He turns away in a complete and total way from God. And so, in that very important sense, he is entirely evil. And yet, and this is a great mystery, insofar as he has existence, God sustains him in existence, and from that perspective, that existence as existence is good. Okay? Not good in the moral sense. Okay? In the moral sense, he's entirely evil. 
And, and it's on the basis of our, of our moral choices that we go either up or down. You know what I mean? And so uh, it's all good that we exist insofar as we have existence. Uh, but looking at it from a moral perspective, that's where our salvation hinges. You know, and I made the comment last time that regarding Satan, Satan also has, is turned towards God to some extent intellectually. And this is the great temptation, is that if you know God, right, that's when you become culpable. Now, you do have to know God in order to love him. Uh, but what is the difference? Satan, some, he knows God better than we do to some extent. But that's not enough. For our salvation, we have to love. And that is, is the primary place that the moral life has in terms of determining our, our mortal destiny. And he determined his immoral destiny uh, by becoming, in a complete and total way, morally evil. But from the perspective of his existence, he wouldn't exist unless... And this is a great mystery. God sustained him in being. Because his existence doesn't come from him. But the only place it can ever come from is from that being who is existence. And so anything that exists, there's not like something's out there that didn't come from God. It came from him. But Satan is morally evil. And, and, and that's what obviously distinguishes him. You mentioned that... Uh his mentor was, you know, St. Ambrose, and mm. he was influenced by several other people. Mm-hmm. But there was no mention about the role of his mother. Oh, yeah. Okay, but good. at the yeah. same time, you know, yeah. the, his same. mother has obviously had an influence. And from that, yeah. what yeah. about his son? Because mm-hmm. it must have been very interesting, the dynamics, yeah. as he goes becomes a bishop of having a, an adult son. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating story there. Now, regarding his mother, okay, so we spoke about it a little bit last time, but, but, but let me, let me t- speak about her a bit. Uh, so Saint Saint Monica. Uh, now his his father, remember, is. You know, I'll start with his father because that's a shorter story. <laughs> his father, uh, you know, was Patricius, and he was not a Christian. And this goes to show the importance of good Christian fathers. Okay, and and, and there's been studies on this. Uh, how men respond. Uh, the percentage of men who have a father who practices their religion. Almost every one of them practices their faith. But if the father doesn't, and the mother does, the number drops, I mean, by, by 20, 30, 40%. It's extraordinary, okay? And yet, Monica's faith is almost so extraordinary that just by her faith alone, Augustine is kind of hanging by this thread. And so she, as a great mother, inform, like, educated him in the faith, and Patricius allowed uh, him to be educated in the faith. When he went away to school at age nine, he kind of separated from the influence of his mom. And that's where it be, his whole uh, coming under her influence kind of began to, to, he began to be separated from her and from his faith. I mean, for a long time, he identified his love with his mother and his relationship with his mother with his relationship with faith. And then when he went to Carthage at age 17, uh, he separates himself both from his mom in a large part and then from his faith in, in, in a great way, uh, in an extraordinary and, and, and profound way. And yet, she kind of, like God, is like a hound of heaven and keeps pursuing him. And so she did pursue him onto the Italian peninsula. Uh, she tracked him down. She got him to give up his mistress. Uh, she got him, uh, and then he took another one before he, she could get him a, another, uh, another, another bride. Uh, but, 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 and then he had to leave her. And, and then the story of Monica, it goes further. She was there, and actually right after his conversion... He's able to share the, t- the tears of joy with her. Uh, he hurries back to see his friend Alpheus, okay? And then he immediately goes to his mother to share his joy uh, of his conversion. 
uh, and so it would be worth reflecting on. And then you know, the story continues, because she was prepared to accompany him back to North Africa, and there's one of the greatest moments, and, and art, there's a great, some great artistic renditions of this, where they're waiting at Ostia. Ostia is the Roman port that you wait at to, to go, uh, to, he was waiting at to go on this boat, and this is where she died. But before they died, there's a great passage here in the Confessions where they discuss eternity. And there's this beautiful moment, and one of her last moments on earth was spent with her son discussing eternity. And then it's be- absolutely beautiful. And then, and then she dies, and she remains there. Now she's buried in Rome, at the Church of St. Augustine in Rome. Uh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. For what it's worth, uh, St. Augustine was, was uh, buried in North Africa. Uh, he died uh, in 430. Literally, the vandals were at the door. They didn't burn his library, thanks be to God. And, and, uh, but, but then with, with, when this, uh, uh, after uh, North Africa was taken over by the uh, Islamic Empire, uh, uh, his remains were threatened, and they were taken to uh, Sardinia, which is an island off the coast of Italy. And then the Saracens threatened that place, uh, and, and his remains were moved to uh, a place south of Milan, in Pavia, uh, a little church there that also houses the remains of Boethius, someone I gave a lecture on a little while back. And they're literally the first two great medieval theologian and philosophers uh, that you would read in a history of medieval philosophy class are buried literally in the same church. Uh, it's a beautiful little, little coincidence there. Anyway, so that's something about his mom. Uh, and, and then with his son, I think the relationship discontinues a little bit after he takes orders uh, he says some wonderful things about his son. Though. He, he, he speaks up his intelligence. He's, he's, over, he's overwhelmed by the, the, the great young man his son has become. He's grown in, in intellect and in faith. And he comments right before his conversion on the man his son has become. And he even states there very beautifully uh, that his son is the same age as him, as, as they embrace and are baptized together. That by faith and by grace, we are the same age. And, and, and it's really a beautiful reflection on how God used even some of his corrupt decisions to bring good out of them. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. Anyway, that's, that's what I'll say there. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thank you. God bless. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll see you this coming Tuesday over at St. Mike. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.